Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. One of the most influential conservative commentators in the 20th century was a man named Andrew Breitbart. And I have to confess, I know nothing about this man at all. The only thing that I actually know about Andrew Breitbart is I haven't read any of his books. I don't know whether he was a good conservative. I don't know what he actually thought he wanted to conserve, if conservatives do such thing anymore. But I do know his most famous quote, because that quote is quoted by everybody. Andrew Breitbart purportedly, I don't know this for sure, but everybody says that he said that politics is downstream from culture. That politics is downstream from culture, which means that that culture is further upriver than politics. Now that's a pretty fascinating claim because if he's right, then what he's saying is that politics do not shape culture. Culture shapes politics, which is a fascinating thing to think about, which means that you can't begin with elections. When we look at the the crazy world that we live in, you know, I, I remember I'm a child of the 80s. This world is crazy. It's crazy when 20 year olds are saying, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, my grandpa saying things like that when he was little, when I was a kid. Now 20-year-olds are saying it. This world's crazy. But we cannot look at the next election as the thing that's going to fix it. It's not politics that fixes culture. It is culture that changes politics. Go back one more further. If you want to go to the source of the river, it's families that change culture and culture that change politics. So that if godly families would focus on the word of God, they would revitalize their community. And if communities, that once they're revitalized, would work on their neighborhoods, and if neighborhoods then would band together and revitalize their towns, and if reformed towns that have gone through reformation would get together and change counties, and if counties would change commonwealths, and if commonwealths would change countries, you'd have reformation in a country, and you would have the political candidate that you want. We tend to think that this top-down approach is gonna create godly culture. If we can just get the right guy in office, then everything will be better. How many cycles of elections do we need to go through to realize that that's not true? At best, eight years, and then it's with one stroke of a pen, the next despot will wipe away everything with executive order top-down doesn't work. It's politics that are downstream from culture. Now, that is one way, I think, that we can work to see change in this culture is by revitalizing families, communities, towns, countries, commonwealths, and building from the ground up. But that's an important point for a different sermon. My point is to show that there are such things that are downstream from other things, and those things matter. So for instance, what about consequences? Consequences are downstream of action. You don't have consequences until you do something. 
because it's downstream of that. Once you've done something, there's a consequence of that because it's downstream. I hope that makes sense. As you're looking at something, there's one thing that's causal and then one thing that follows it. Today, we're going to be looking at an action that God did in our life by his power and his power alone that caused the greatest blessings to ever be poured into your life. And the reason why this is important is because we don't go trying to chase after the blessings. The blessings flow into us because of what God did. His action is upriver from the blessings. And today we're going to look at how his blessings, his blessings, all of them are downstream from peace. Peace, I don't know if you know this or not, is one of the most consequential topics in all of Scripture. The peace of God. Every blessing that you've ever received is because you're downstream of the peace of God. Every one of God's good gifts that you've ever received is because it flowed out of peace and into your life. So today, we need to understand what the peace of God is. We need to understand not only what the peace of God is, but we need to understand what the peace of God will do for us as individuals. And we also need to understand what the peace of God will do for us as a church. Now, I started writing this sermon as verses uh, 27 through the end of John chapter 14. Today, we're going to do half a verse because peace is that important. So if you will, turn with me to John 14, 27a, is that's all we're going to cover this morning. John 14, half of verse 27. The text says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one of the most all-encompassing, glorious promises, the most astounding blessings that you ever declared to your people is right here in 27 that you will give us peace. Lord, I pray today that we would understand why that's so shocking, why that's so amazing. And Lord, I pray that we would understand exactly what that means to have peace with God for us as individuals, but also, Lord, for us as a church. Lord, help us to see that, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we need to know what peace is, because when we learn words in English, it's not always the same as what that word means in Hebrew. Sometimes there's overlap, but sometimes there's, there's a richness to one language and a concept that it's trying to communicate that doesn't show up in another language. And peace, shalom, in the Hebrew, is certainly one of those concepts. There is a depth and a beauty to the word shalom that English does not convey that I think we have to understand if we're going to understand one of the central tenets of our faith, that we have peace with God. The Hebrew word for peace, of course, is shalom, and it's distinguished from its, from its English counterparts because peace does not just mean, in Hebrew, the cessation of war. When a country has peace, it's not fighting. When a country has peace, maybe it's written a peace treaty. When a hippie has peace, he goes, hey, man. <laughs> Pastor Derek's rolling his eyes at me already. 
The Hebrew word is so much deeper than, than the cessation of conflict. That's the secondary meaning of the term. The primary meaning of the term is wholeness, completeness, order, unity, integration, where every single part is working together in harmony. Harmony and integrity are two synonyms that I think are much better for shalom than the word peace. For instance, I buy my son a 10,000 piece Lego set and he comes home. What's the first thing that my budding engineer does? He dumps it all over the floor so that there is no peace. There's lots of pieces, but there's no peace. We come in and we look and we're like, Graham, this is a mess. And with a glimmer in his eye, he says, just wait. And he gets his little instructions out and he follows them and he builds according to the plan. And he puts one piece together, another piece together, and then it starts to take shape. What Graham is doing is he's bringing shalom to the pieces. He's bringing order and unity. He's bringing coherence and integrity to the block so that when he's finished, that completed thing that he's made has shalom in the Hebrew sense of the term. Now that Lego little thing that he made, whatever it is that we bought him, it's not in any conflict as far as war, but it's in conflict with its purpose when it's out of alignment, when it's not put together. When it's put together though, it has shalom has integrity, it's integrated, it has unity, it has wholeness, it's complete. That it gets really close to the idea of what shalom actually means. It means something that is organized, something that has purpose, that's finished, that's complete. So a working definition of the word shalom could be when all of the complex pieces come together in unity, and harmony and coherence, a thing has shalom. For instance, here's a biblical example. God hovering over the waters. The waters are chaotic. The waters are disorganized. They have no form and they're void. That's the opposite of shalom. That's disintegration. That's disunity. That's a lack of coherence. What does God do? One day after another, day one, day two, day three, he takes the chaos and he subdues it. He takes the chaos and he orders it. He takes the pieces of matter and he puts them together one by one until it creates something with beauty and coherence. So that when God rests on the seventh day, God has shalom. Creation has shalom. It has integrity, unity, harmony, coherence. Here's a couple other examples. This one is fascinating because you've heard this story differently than I'm getting ready to tell you. Joseph. You remember Joseph? Old Testament Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery. The Midianite travelers take him down to Egypt, and one thing after another, he has these tragedies in his life. He rises up to be the number one servant in Potiphar's house, and then bam, he's thrown in prison. Then he becomes the most trustworthy prisoner there, and then they forget about him and they leave him for dead. And then finally, after all this time, God elevates him out of the prison and brings him into the palace and makes him the second in power in all of the land of Egypt. And then we have this conversation when Joseph's brothers come and Joseph is pretending to be someone that he's not, they don't recognize him and look at the conversation that they have. 
Then he asked, Joseph asked them, it's Genesis 43, 27 and 28. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father is well. He's still alive. And they bowed down to him in homage. Now, if I were going to translate this verse according to the actual words that are there and give you a Hebrew glimpse of what it is, here's what it says. Then Joseph asked them about their shalom. And then he said, is your father having shalom of whom you spoke? Is he alive? And they said, your servant, our father is having shalom and he is still alive. And they bowed down in homage to him. Joseph is asking them an astonishing question. He's saying, is your life put together? Are you missing any pieces? Is there something about you that's disintegrated? And guess what? It was. The brothers had 12 brothers and now there's only 11. Joseph is the missing piece. He's asking them, is your life fractured in any way? Tell me about it. And they're like, no, everything's good, Joseph. He's like, oh, really? I don't think so. How's your father? Is your father having shalom? Yeah, he's great. He lost his, his blessed son. The brothers don't have shalom. The father doesn't have shalom. Joseph is asking them a very pointed question. Is your life broken in any way? And then they very ignorantly say, no, we're all good here. It's the same thing we do today. When the missing piece that would have integrated their family was standing right in front of them. Joseph is pointing to the fact that a life cannot have shalom if there's a piece missing to it. Their family can't have shalom because he's not there. Their father cannot have shalom because he lost his son. So why does Joseph do what he does when he, he reveals himself to them and he brings them all to Egypt to live with him in peace and harmony? He's bringing them shalom, which is a picture of the gospel that we will look at in just a moment. Shalom is when a family is restored in reconciliation. It's when it was broken, but now it's fixed. That's shalom. It's not just peace. Lots of families can have peace because there's the absence of conflict, but are they whole? Are they well? It's a very different thought. A man named Eliphaz, who was Job's friend, and if you've read the book of Job, he was no friend indeed. He said this about shalom. You will know that your tent is secure, for you will visit your abode and you will fear no loss. The word secure there is shalom. You will know that your tent has shalom, for you will visit your abode and you will fear no loss. He's saying when your tent has integrity and there's no rips in your tent and there's no holes in your tent, the sheep can't get out. Do you see what he's saying about shalom? Shalom is where there's nothing ripped, nothing broken, nothing missing integrity it's not just peace a brick wall in hebrew is said to have shalom if there's no holes in it and if there are holes in it then it has no shalom it needs to be fixed and mended in the same way a life that has brokenness does not have shalom does not have peace and as we look at what the scripture actually says about this we realize that no life no person, when we get past Genesis 3, 
has gotten where they've gotten without some measure of brokenness. All of us are broken in some way or another, which means that we have no peace. We are born without peace. God created the world to have this integrity and this harmony and this unity, and sin is anti-peace. And what I mean by that is not that sin is just war-like, although it is. Sin is chaos. God made everything with harmony. So what's the opposite of that? Chaos. God made everything with integrity. What's the opposite of that? Disunity. God made everything fixed. Now it's broken. And what's interesting to me is the very first work that God does is he binds the chaos and shapes the chaos. And then what does sin do? When we sinned, we unleash the chaos back on his creation so that now the the skies, the land, the waters are all crying out in pain because of the sin that we unleashed upon it. Earthquakes, tidal waves, thunderstorms, droughts, famines, all of it. Our lives, look at our disintegration that we have in our thinking, in our feelings, in our hearts, in our wills. Every single thing now outside of Genesis 3 is broken. Our bodies break apart. There better be so many years says amen. Our mind has become fractured. Our heart shattered in a thousand different directions. Our soul fragmented in all different kinds of idolatry. Our will cracked and chipped in all kinds of sins. Marriages severed. Families splintered. Nations crumbling. Brokenness is, an, is a disease of the fall that tacks the fundamental integrity of God's good design. After the fall, there is no peace. It's just brokenness. Now, there are seasons in the Old Testament where without war, which means that peace is much bigger than just war. There are seasons where the Israelites had a lot of things going good for them. You think about David. David had this wonderful kingdom where he reunified the 12 tribes of Israel. And then what does David do? He unleashes chaos on his court with the sin of Bathsheba. It rips his entire family apart. You look at Solomon, the height of the Jewish experiment. You go through all the pages of the Old Testament. The best years of Israel was under the reign of Solomon. When everybody from all over the world was coming to celebrate the grandeur of this empire. And then what does he do by the end of his life? He's bowing down to every idol. He has 700 wives, 300 or something concubines. He is bowing down to different idols. He is unleashing chaos upon his empire so that his son, within the first three days of his reign, the whole thing falls apart into disunity and disintegration. The Lord made us to have shalom, unity, harmony, peace. And after sin, everything broke apart. It's like a million dollar Ming vase. I actually looked this up. $42 million was the highest one that got sold. And it can be shattered by a $2 hammer. That's what sin has done. We were made precious with great order and unity and yet sin so cheap and so trifle a thing has shattered us into a million pieces so that we cannot heal ourselves from our own brokenness and we cannot know the God 
of peace, with perfect shalom, perfect integrity, perfect unity. We can't know him by our own strength and by our own will because we're irreparably broken. We're kind of like the spiritual Humpty Dumpty. We had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, they can't put you and I back together again. That brings us to today's text. Because nobody in their own strength can put themselves back together. I could tell you, I could stand up here and say, just try harder. Just go out from here and pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Just try. Quit being so lazy. That will work, right? How hard have we tried before and failed and failed and failed because we're broken and we can't fix the disease, it goes too deep. So if that were the end of the Bible, if that were it, you're broken, I'm broken, we can't fix ourselves, that would be the most unhopeful message that has ever been given. And at just the right time, after thousands of years of human beings trying to fix themselves, the true and perfect man, the God-man came and he said, I will give you shalom. I will give you unity and harmony. All the broken pieces I'll put back together again. That's what John 14 is attesting. Let's look at the text again. Peace, shalom, I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He's not given to us like the world gives. I remember as a kid on the playground, somebody broke a bottle in the sand and I didn't see it. And I was crawling on the ground and my leg was getting cut open by the, by the glass. And, the, and, and I was like, what is going on? My, my leg feels moist. And then I looked down and there's this glass. That's the very best that you and I can do in our sin is drag ourselves through the broken pieces of our life and do nothing but rip ourselves further apart. And yet Christ comes and offers true peace. He said, I'm bringing you peace. That's the Greek word irene, which is the, the Greek cognate equivalent for the Hebrew word shalom. He's saying, I'm gonna put you back together again. I was thinking about an example of this. Let's say someone is driving. There's a car um, at the elementary school not far from here that's sitting out there. Have you ever seen these? They sit out there and it's sort of a warning on why not to speed, why not to drive drunk. This car is mutilated. There's no way that this car could ever drive again. Let's say that a good mechanic came along and towed that car away. And then he decided to replace the engine because it was broken. Put a new transmission, a new drivetrain, he decided to put a new bumper and fender and quarter panel. And then piece by piece by piece by piece, he puts that car back together again, better than it was originally, so that it now functions according to its purpose. You can look at the car and say, hey, cheer up, car. Start driving, start up. And the car would be as lifeless and as dead as you could imagine. But under the hand of a wise mechanic, it can be brought back to life. In the same way, God has taken you in your total brokenness. You were totaled. In your sin, you crashed. You were totaled. 
And he put you back together again, piece by piece by piece, so that now at the sound of his voice, you come alive. He is the author of peace who has brought you peace. And he's brought you peace out of many things. He's promised to heal you of your brokenness. How many stories have we heard of people who are stuck and trapped in addictions that God healed, that Christ healed? Addictions to sex and pornography, addictions to substances and alcohol, addictions to all kinds of things like control. We don't like to talk about that addiction, but we're addicted to that one. God healed. Anxiety and depression. I've struggled with anxiety and depression. And what I found, this is not pharmaceutical advice for you. You can work that out for yourself. With an open Bible and a commitment to prayer, the Lord heals my heart when it is sick. Broken marriages, he's put back together. Broken minds, hearts, wills, and souls, he remedies. But the greatest thing that Christ has remedied. The, the biggest that could not have a superficial fix. It's not like Jesus came up to us and fixed us with bubble gum and Elmer's glue. He let our brokenness shatter him. He let our brokenness fracture him pierce him, nail him to the cross. He shows how deep the brokenness actually went and the fact that he was ripped apart for our idolatry on the cross. He got wrath from God when you and I got grace. He got the chaos poured out on top of him when we got God's peace. That is the greatest brokenness that he healed in us is our disunity with God. And when we talk about what the peace of God has done for us, we have to begin with salvation because that is what has reconciled us, fixed our brokenness. That is what more than anything has fixed the greatest problem that you and I have ever faced. The greatest problem we have ever faced is that we are separated from God, that we are broken in our sin, that we, that we're, that we need to be saved. Paul says in Romans 5, 1, what has this peace done for you? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only tackled our personal brokenness, but he mended our brokenness with God. You and I had a chasm between us and the Lord that could not be repaired by our own effort and by our own strength and by our own will and by our own ingenuity. God, in his grace, mended together the only relationship in your life that matters so that now you have shalom with God. Not just that, that God is no longer pointing his howitzer at you. Howitzer's a really big gun. It's not only that. It's that now you've been brought into unity with him. You've been brought into harmony with him. Your soul has been brought into alignment with him. Do you see why knowing what the words mean matters so much? If salvation is just God is no longer at war with you, there's a lot that is still left unsaid. There's a lot of people I'm not at war with that I don't like. There's a lot of people that I'm not actively fighting who really get on my nerves. That's not how God feels about us. It's not that the war has stopped. It's not that, 
that the bow of his wrath is now no longer pulled is that you've been brought in unity with him in union with Christ so that now he loves you the same way that he loves Jesus. He's brought peace between you and him. Not the kind of dull peace where you look at each other and you're like at a family reunion, you're like, oh, I have to see this person again this year. <laughs> it's joyful, it's beautiful, it's authentic, it's real. God loves you in the same ferocious affection that he loves Christ because you've been united to Christ. You are in Christ, therefore he loves you. That peace that you have with God is not superficial. It goes down to the depths of your bones, to your cellular level. He loves you. This is why Joseph, as we said earlier, is a picture of Christ. Because he pointed out the fact that your family is broken and then he worked in order to restore his family and to bring them back in. What do you think Christ has done? He's the Joseph that we threw away. He's the one that was thrown into the prison of a tomb. He was the one who was elevated to the throne and he's the one who brought us back into the family. Through his, own, through his own payment. He's the true Joseph who brought shalom to the people of God. He's the one who brought us off the battlefield. We had our weapons pointed at the Father. We were God-haters when we were born in our iniquity. Every action that we ever committed was in hatred and opposition of God. And he rescued us off the battlefield and he made us sons and daughters and friends. He gave us shalom. That reality has been permanently paid for by Christ, and you can't improve upon it. The standing you have with God can't be improved upon, and it can't be reduced. So when you leave here today, and you go do some good deed, God is not more pleased with you than he was when you first came in. And when you go out of here today, and you say something utterly foolish, or you get angry, or you yell at somebody, or you say something you shouldn't have said, whatever it is, God is not more displeased with you. This peace that Christ is talking about is permanent, perpetual, and forever. It can't be improved upon or lost. You have peace with God. There's other kinds of peace that we receive after that, after you've been saved, that aren't permanent, perpetual, and perfect, but they're growing in that direction. The peace that Christ gave us with God, that's finished. But there's other things that are growing in peace that aren't perfect yet. Like Paul says, you know, I struggle from day to day. I do the things that I don't wanna do. Sometimes I don't do the things I wanna do. That's called sanctification. God is working in us more and more peace, even for those of us who have perfect peace. Does that make sense? Our souls have perfect peace, but our sanctification is growing. Look at what he says in Romans 8, 6 about a mind. Our souls have been perfectly set at peace with God, but our minds are still jacked up. Live a day in my head. I think you'd say the same for you. 
right? Romans 8, 6. For the mind set upon the flesh is death, but the mind set upon the spirit is life and peace. Through our life, through every day of walking with Christ, through the power of the spirit, he is reintegrating our mind back to the gospel so that, so that our mind is being shaped and sharpened according to the peace of God. Not that it's tranquil, not that it's some sort of meditative Eastern Buddhist peace. It's being reintegrated to the scripture. Over the course of our life, our mind is being set upon the things of God more fully. So that next year when you come in here, I hope that your mind is more conformed to God than it is this year. And over the next decade, that you're thinking the thoughts of God more fiercely, more ardently, more passionately than you are today. Because over the course of your life, he not only gave you perfect peace in your salvation, but he's given you peace upon peace and more peace in your mind so that your mind will be set upon the things of Christ. Your heart is also growing in peace. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love this passage because it says the God of peace, which means that he's the author of peace, is the one who gives you peace. The one who is peace has limitless shalom to pour out on you. And over the course of your life, it's not automatic. When you first became a Christian, and now, whether that was one day ago or 10 years ago, you should look a little different. But over the course of time, he is giving us peace that regenerates our hearts and our minds so that our hearts no longer are bothered by the same things that they used to be bothered by so that the sins that we once struggled with now are being, are being laid down at the foot of the cross so that our walk looks different, our anxieties look different so that, so that this heart of ours that used to be like a little sh a leaf shaking in the wind now is becoming this mighty thing that's much difficult, much more difficult to budge. And as our mind and as our heart are being conformed to the peace of God, it changes our outlook. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. All joy and all peace in believing. So that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He's saying that as a Christian, there's two realities for you. You have all peace when it comes to your relationship with God and your soul, and yet in your life and in your actions and in your walk, you don't have all peace. But may the God who is all peace continue to give you all peace so that you will abound in hope, so that you will grow in hope. One of the things, this is a little bit off topic, but it's, it's, it's tangential. One of the great things I think the church has got to work on these days is hope. How discouraged are we? How much in despair are we? How beaten down are we? How frustrated are we? And yet, as the peace of God that surpasses all understanding comes into our hearts in full, where's the abounding of hope, dear brother and sister? Why are we not singing with great joy that, that we're here today, that, we, that he lives, and that when we walk out into the world and we see their madness, 
Why did we let it affect us like we do? Why do we let it poison our hope? If he's given us all peace, he's united us and knit us to Christ. So there's no more division, there's no more dividing line. We are in him. Why is our joy so easily taken? Why is our hope so easily stolen away from us? This is my prayer for me, that that I would abound in hope. This is my prayer for you, that as the peace of God becomes fuller and fuller and fuller in your life, that you would abound in hope. There's no doom and gloomers and negative Nancys in the kingdom. Let us be a joyful, excited, happy people because we serve a joyful, happy God. No matter what happens to us, we can abound in hope. One of my favorite books, I was telling my sister Wanda about it earlier, is The Rare Jewel of, Christ- of Christian Contentment. Other than the Bible, I think it's the best book ever written. The reason why that book is so good is because it tells you plainly. I'm gonna summarize the first 100 pages for you in, a, in, in my own way. If everything that could possibly happen to you does, if every negative event that you ever dreamed of becomes your reality, if everyone turns on you and if everyone hates you and if you're abandoned by everyone that you love, then you have it better than you deserved because you deserved hell. And for a fleeting moment, Christ has given you a little suffering to polish you and to perfect you, so be joyful. The only hell that you will ever face is the life that you live today. And you will be with Christ forever. The world can only experience heaven here on earth. We can only experience hell on earth. Do not let your joy fade because of temporary circumstances. You have 80 years for the young ones. For the rest of us, we have something less than that. Do not let your joy fade because of circumstances, because you have been given the peace of God. And you know, this is number four, that you will be preserved by that peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who is peace is preserving you. If you're his, he will not drop you, leave you, forsake you, abandon you, or let you slip through any crack. Because of Jesus, he will hold you in the palm of his hand. He will not lose you. And you will be his preserved until the day of the Lord. And this, these truths also apply corporately. His peace affects us as a church. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, receive or rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul is promising through the Holy Spirit that not only will our minds and our hearts and our outlooks and our perseverance and our preparation all be be made through this peace that God has given us, through this this harmony that he has brought in us, also going to affect the local church so that the church will be whole, so that the church will live in peace. How many churches have we been to or we seen? I pray to God that it doesn't happen here, that there is no peace, but it's chaos, disunity and brokenness. 
May the God who is peace bless this congregation with peace. May the God who is peace bless the relationships of this church so that we have unity and harmony and love for one another and that we would forgive one another and that we would care for one another and that we would serve one another and that we would bend over backwards for one another and that we would demonstrate the love of Christ who gave everything for us and giving everything for one another. This God who united us to Christ in his great love has called us to be united one to another in love. God will bring his peace to us by giving us himself. Did you see that? This is not a try harder. It says, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. Why? Because the God of love and peace will be with you. One of the evidences that God is with you is that your life has peace. That your life has shalom, that has unity, that has harmony. And one of the evidences that God has withdrawn from you is that your life has disunity and chaos. Look at culture, look at the world. Romans 1 says it, he has abandoned them to their own devices and look at the chaos that is going on in society today. Again, one of the great evidences that the God of peace is with you is that you will have peace. You will have shalom. He will transform you to have unity. It says that also this congregation, all congregations who call upon the name of Christ will declare a gospel of peace. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand, stand firm. Having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus, when he in John 14 said, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, he was promising that you would have peace with God, that you would have peace in your minds and in your hearts and in your wills and in your, in your preparation, in your congregations, and that you would declare a gospel that would bring peace back to the planet. Not just a world that's at war with God, a world that has chaos and disunity and is broken, that this gospel will bring unity back to the world. And this is another pet peeve of mine. The church, not just individuals, the church has been so consumed with defeatism for the last 50 years that we've forgotten that the gospel is supposed to bring peace back to the world. His government will have no end. His peace will have no end. That's Isaiah 9. This gospel is going to mend what is broken. Everything that was broken in the fall will find healing in Christ. Why, why are we saying things like we lose down here? Which is what John MacArthur recently said. I like John MacArthur. But he said the church loses down here. No, we don't. Christ Jesus, our general, leads us to victory and the world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. There's too many promises to ignore. The church in the power of Christ wins. His kingdom comes as it is on earth, on earth as it will be in heaven. And think about the opportunity that we have. As an American, we have the greatest opportunity that we've ever had and we need to stop looking at it as defeat. There's brokenness all around us. 
Men are broken, women are broken, marriages are broken, children are broken, schools are broken, government is broken, the economy, entertainment, Hollywood, the news are broken, our elites are broken, the little guy is broken, chaos is reigning, there's disunity and disorder. What an opportunity to proclaim a gospel that heals every single one of those things. What an opportunity to share a gospel of peace that reignites and unifies a world that is filled with chaos. We get the opportunity, brothers and sisters, to declare a gospel that heals all of that, Christ or chaos. We get to declare the fact that Christ will heal the brokenness. And I believe in the course of history, as we near the final day when Christ returns, that his gospel will be successful and that his gospel will heal and that his gospel will bring peace on earth as it says that it will. Now, what are some ways that we can do that? Well, our brother yesterday went and preached at a pride parade and he heralded the gospel. You're like, that's too intense for me. (laughs) A sister in the congregation decided to join the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Council at her job so that she could provide a gospel answer to people who don't know the gospel. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can be involved in culture so that we can declare the goodness of the gospel and bring peace to people who are broken. There's all kinds of people in your life who are broken that you can declare the good gospel to, and by the Lord's grace, he would save them and he would redeem them and he would bring them peace. We gotta get past this idea of defeatism as Christians. We gotta get past this idea of ostriches huddling together with our heads in the sand waiting for Jesus to come and wonka vader us out of here. We gotta build, we gotta work. We gotta take what Christ has given us and build to the glory of God. And there's a great verse for this, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace. That's what we've been talking about, right? The God of peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, church. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Isn't that amazing? It doesn't say the God of peace will soon help you have a peaceful, tranquil church service while the world is going crazy. It says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, church, as you advance and as you declare, and as you share the goodness of the gospel. He has promised us his peace. He purchased his peace. He delivered us his peace, and he will transform the world with his peace. The only question that we need to ask ourselves is if we will declare it, if we will embrace it, or if we will continue to embrace the idea of defeatism and discouragement and depression. His peace has integrated you to Christ and his gospel will reclaim the world for his glory. Hold your head high. Be joyful about that. And let's pray. Lord, when Christ... And John 14 said that he is leaving his disciples with peace. Lord, I can't imagine a more profound and deep and glorious statement that has ever been uttered in human history.
for all of us here who are fractured and broken, dead in our trespasses. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And not a peace that causes us to live and do nothing. Not the kind of peace where we buy a vacation home on a mountain somewhere and we live out our introverted existence. A peace that does things to us. A peace that gives us mental, emotional, spiritual integration to the scriptures and to the gospel. A peace that preserves us. A peace that unites us as a congregation and a peace that propels us to declare the gospel to the chaotic nations. Lord, let us not understand your peace as the cessation of anything, but as the commission to everything. Lord, let us rest in the blessing of your peace. It's in Christ's name, amen.